This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome to the show today. We've got one of our favorite guests, Dr. Mike Larkin. Mike has been a fish researcher for, wow, a long time, 20 plus years. He's helped us out on the podcast with lots of great information on different fish, and he's done a tremendous amount of research on bonefish. He's going to talk to us today about a new paper that he has that documents bonefish going from the Florida Keys to the Bahamas. Seems like that's a very easy thing to understand, but some of the scientists disputed it, said it wasn't uh, possible. I don't know why it wouldn't be possible, but Mike is going to tell us all about that, and we're going to finish up with a bunch of information on knots. So stay tuned. Here we go. I had a couple of professors say, no, it's not true. They're lying to you. They, they, anyway, I'm just got crucified because of it. I'm Mike Larkin, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. All right. Mike Larkin, you're back. What yeah, have you been up to, man? <laughs> been doing a bunch of these they've been fun but uh just just working waiting for the uh waiting for the wind to die and um get warmer no I kidding. actually forced my kids to go out a couple of weeks ago and it did it didn't work it was cold they were <laughs> complaining so winter's been tough been tough you know yeah. trying to use the around use of the boat but the weather hasn't been supporting that well uh the entire state of florida and most of the other states can can uh understand exactly Relate. what you're saying it is super super cold everywhere right now yeah, yeah, it's in windy and rainy, and it, anyway, it's just uh, the first winter I have a boat, and now I anyway just been and I only really go out on weekends. Yeah, my work schedule. So, so when it's super windy and rainy and cold, is that good for the overall fishery? Does it have any effect on it from a scientist point of view? I know from a fisherman's point of view, what I would say, but from a scientist point of view, uh, I know that it can obviously get too cold, and we can have fish die-offs and stuff like that. But do you think that? Uh, the, the rough, windy weather and, and cooler conditions somehow benefit in a way that while we're sitting around watching football on TV instead of fishing that we can, yeah. we can say, well, at least it's getting better. Well, from, from my perspective, looking at a lot of the data, um, recreational data specifically, when you have those calm days, you can actually see peaks in the landing. So I kind of feel like it's, it's good. It gives, gives the fish a break, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I can there's not a derby out there, people fishing and harvesting fish. And, and I, I'm like to think I'm one of those people harvesting fish when I can. So I'm not picking on anyone, but, um, but it is good. I feel like it gives them a, a break and lowers the mortality and lowers the harvest, even yeah. though we'd like to be out there. Well, but, that, from a fisherman's perspective, that's what I would say too, is it gives them, gives, gives them a little break and gives the spots a break. And I don't know, just kind of stirs things up a little bit too. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, so we've done the hot seat questions with you before, where we'll ask a whole bunch of different questions. But today, since we've done that a couple times with you, I want to ask you a couple of different questions. And I don't want to get into a real deep conversation about any of these, but just just kind of curious. Uh, and it might give us something to talk about later, too. All right, so we're going to go with three questions today um, to get us started. So number one is, what is one thing that you've learned in your research that surprised you? Like while you're while you're studying all your all the fish over all these years, is there one thing that stands out, or or, or one of a few things that stand out that that really surprised you in your finding? Well, one thing which we're going to go into today. Well, oh, I guess the, the theory, the the, the the sum it up. Like we think we know, but we don't really know until we study it. Like and the thing we're going to go about today is um, the bonefish going from Florida to the Bahamas. Um, that's just an example of like, it really blew me away. You know, I think of, you think of bonefish and I mean, they tail, right? The water is so shallow that their tail sticks out of the water. Right. And yet here's a fish moving over hundred miles over very, very deep water through a Gulf stream um, making those. So, so that, I guess that's, that's, you know, you don't know until you study, like you think, you know, mm -hmm. but then when you study, you find out. So that's just an example of that's one thing I found out. So I try to it forces you to keep an open mind because um, just look at all angles, because if you make an assumption, well, you, you could be wrong. And I was wrong. I didn't believe it at first. But then we had multiple fish make that movement. We'll go into it later on. In the so just just briefly, when you uh, when you're thinking that, you know, what's going on, it's a shallow water fish that we typically see in shallow water. Most of the time you're you were kind of making the assumption that, well, they probably spawn nearby in, you know, shallower water, not way out in the middle of the of the ocean or maybe they don't. I mean, some of the, the, the water that you might cross between the, the Florida Keys and Cuba or the Florida Keys and the Bahamas, there's some incredibly deep water there. Like, so well, we is that the Well, we kind of knew from the data that they that? were they were spawning in the, um, in the reefs area, a little bit beyond the reefs, but I didn't think they were going beyond the reef to different different countries, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't, like, uh, okay, so well, that really, really surprised me. That's interesting for, for later. We're going to talk about that. So one other question is, what is one thing that you have changed your mind on in the last 10 years, which it might be the bonefish. <laughs> it might be the bonefish, the same thing that you just talked about. Yeah, yeah, but one thing changed my I'm trying to think of a different example, something I changed my my mind on. And in the scientific field, um, uh, yeah, I'm fucking out, Tom. I can't really think of something I changed my mind. And I like to think I keep an open mind and look at different angles and different options. So, um, um, yeah, sorry, Tom. I can't really think of one thing I keep. <laughs> okay. Mind. Well, your mind is set. You're I mean, rigid, come back rigid to in your later, beliefs. But... No, I got you. Okay. And then the third that I thought was interesting because you, you talk about your kids a lot. You're, you're with your kids a lot. I wonder if there is a a lesson that you learned through science and through your through your um, process of of studying all these different fish over all these different years. Uh, if there is a lesson that you have applied to your kids or taught your kids a lesson that you learned in, while you're doing your your research. Yeah, we can we can definitely make a difference. So whether it's fishing mortality, whether it's the population, whether it's climate change, we can fix this. I know it's um, a big issue now, but I just feel like just keep an open mind and we can we can reverse things. I've seen that, especially with fish populations where they have crashed. And 
but they will come back. I mean, it may not happen overnight, but I just feel like keep an open mind. We can fix if we. What was that famous prayer? John F. Kennedy said, if, "If man caused the problem, man can fix the problem." But I, I truly believe that if we can, we can fix things. So don't think, "Oh, it's doom and gloom," or "It's over." It can be fixed. So it you, may take time. <laughs> so, have, and you're you're relating that on a regular basis to your kids in yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I mean they're, they're the yeah because they're the future, right? They well they they have they're gonna have plenty of things to fix, right? It's like we've screwed up a lot of things, so I need to keep I need them to keep that in mind for their careers and their future and their whole generation, you know. So they can they need they can fix things and they will. All right, cool. So as it as as we uh, move into the bonefish conversation, how do you want to start this? What tell us about the research that you were doing and and uh, lead us into what we're going to talk to talk about today. Sure, sure. So recently, um, it's actually some data that was, some of it's pretty old, but um, uh, recently published a paper, um, and the name of it is, um, I can give you a link to it, but bonefish do not respect international borders. And it's really about the connection of, of bonefish going from Florida to the Bahamas. Now, years ago, 15, 18 years ago, actually, Joe Gonzalez tagged a fish. Well, for, I guess let me take a step back. We had a, quite a big uh, bonefish tagging project in the Florida Keys, where we had over 8,000 fish tagged, close to 400 recaptures. So we had a big, long bonefish tagging project. And then during this project, about about four years in, uh, Joe Gonzalez, unfortunately the late Joe Gonzalez, he tagged a fish off Key Biscayne. And then about about four months later, it was recaptured in the Bahamas. It was just funny. So so the tags have a... um, this was the first one of the fish that made that movement from Florida to the Bahamas. It was actually Andros. So the tags have a, have a um, phone number on it. It looks like a spaghetti tag. Um, so I actually, it was funny because we get this, I get this guy, uh, I'll never forget, um, his name is Brian Harris from Sarasota, was a dermatologist, was over in oh, Andros. Oh, I know him. I used to fish with him. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay, small, small fishing world. Okay. I've never met the man, but I talked to him a bunch on the phone, but you know. But I really, I sat on it for like three days. I didn't tell my advisor. I didn't even, I didn't even tell my, my girlfriend who's not my wife, but I like, what, what is going on here? Like, is this true? Is somebody playing a joke on me? You know, like, like my, I guess I was closed minded. This is something I, I guess to your point before somebody changed my mind on, but I kind of like sat on it, like, and I kept calling Brian, asking questions, trying to get more detail about him. And, and, um, I even get the point, like, can I see your passport? You know, the stamping, <laughs> but, but I just wanted to know, like, I didn't. So Believe tell me this though, that? what what you you brought in Brian Harris is he the one that caught the fish that Joe Gonzalez yes, yes, I'm sorry. tagged? Yes, yes, over there. So Joe Gonzalez yeah, caught, catches a fish with one of his clients in. He puts the tag in the fish. Key Largo yeah. or or Biscayne. Key, Bay. It was actually Key Biscayne. Biscayne. Key Biscayne. Key Biscayne. Yeah. And then four months later, Brian Harris, a dermatologist, uh, as I remember, he's from the Tampa area, kind of Sarasota, Tampa, Bradenton area. Yeah, yeah, I, I should, think. Look him up still, but yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. he's a f- terrific fisherman. I used to fish him a bunch of times. Brian Harris, a dermatologist from, as I remember, the Tampa, Bradenton, Sarasota kind of area. He was in the Bahamas. He catches the same fish that Joe Gonzalez had tagged in Key Biscayne four yep. months later. Yep. yep. And, and everything the, matches up. The The size matches up. Um, the tag number obviously matches up. Yeah. Um, he had well, the, the specific phone I'm, number. Brian Harris is legit, man. I'm telling you that if that guy's <laughs> telling you that he, he did this, he did it. Um, there, there's no reason for him to, there's no reason for him to falsify. Yeah. That's, he, that's he has I nothing to gain. Like, right. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, he's a very yeah. respected dermatologist, a very respected angler. He's, he has nothing to gain. So that's really super cool. So he, that was the first time that you had seen a fish 
you know, a hundred percent sure that that fish traversed over to the Bahamas. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. And then there was a little side note. So at, at University of Miami, every year as a grad student, I had to give a presentation to all the faculty at, at the the faculty and the students. It's it's brutal because it's painful, but you have to give a presentation and. I presented that uh, for my uh, my annual presentation, and I got crucified. Like I had professors come right up to me and say that is BS. Like that is not that true. Like, it come, couldn't happen. Like they're just yeah, saying yeah, there's yeah. no I, way that that happened. Now certain ones are like like Jerry always very supportive of it. There was but certain I had a couple of professors say no, it's not true. They're lying to you. And they, they anyway, I'm just got crucified because of it. But um, and these are professors which should be open minded, you know. But <laughs> but anyway, um. Yeah, so yeah, that was so I sat on it, but then I released it, and I had criticism from uh, I presented at a at a symposium, you know, like some people, which is, I mean, you never get a hundred percent agreement on anything, right? We know that from politics, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's okay, it, but um, so but you know, I stuck my gu- with my guns, and as you pointed out, like Brian had nothing to gain from this, right? Like he's not. Why would he lie to me? I didn't even know this man, you know, like so. Um, and then, but then, so then, then years go on and then another one happens. So another one, Kenny Knudsen tags one in Almirada. And I don't know if you ever sat down with Kenny Knudsen. He would always say like, I remember back in the day, I saw bonefish leaving the, leaving the Florida Keys. They just left. He would always tell me that story. Hmm. And hubba then, hubba. I, I remember, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the nickname <laughs> of Hubba Hubba. But, um, so he told you the story about the fish leaving. So yeah, yeah. If, uh, he told a lot of people by his story. But anyone that that's spent some time with Kenny, and I love Kenny. He was a great guy. He is a great guy. So um, so yeah, he always talked about like in the um, there was a day in the Keys where he saw like all these bonefish leaving the leaving the channel, one of the channels in the Keys, and they were leaving the Florida Keys, and he thinks they were all going to the Bahamas. And then years later, he goes to tag a bonefish. And then that one goes on to be captured also in Andros. So same location. This one, a guy by the name of Charlie Freeman recaptured it. So so uh, it was great. Like, I got to pick on Kenny. Like, hey, you're, you're right. They did go to the Bahamas. At least that one did. That one that you tagged. <laughs> and then so so those are the two anchor tags. So think of like a spaghetti tagged bonefish that went from Florida to the Bahamas. And then, and then there's another type of tag called acoustic telemetry. So to go through this real quick, think of like a little, like a little, like C cell bet. No, I'm not a C cell. It's too big. Like, um, like a double A or even a triple A size battery. That's what they look like that you put inside the fish. And this tag gives off a ping and every tag has a distinct ping. So, you know, okay, this tag is, this is tag number one. This is tag number two. So, you know, like, okay, I put tag number one in a 23 inch fork length bonefish at this location and then when it goes on to be recaptured sorry i think my computer had a little thing pop up there but anyway um so so there was a, a acoustic telemetry i did one years ago then the bonefish harpen trust did a much more detailed um acoustic telemetry project in the keys so they were they're looking at spawning looking at their movements so therefore so now um one of those fish that they put a telemetry tag in Gabber captured over in the Bahamas as well. So this is different. So with these um, tags, they're giving off a ping, and then there you have to put a, a receiver in the water. We call them listening stations. To think of like a little tube in the water that listens for them. And, and it depends how, how the distance that it hears the fish depends on the depth of water, depends on the bottom type and all that stuff. But anyway, but you have to have a listening device in the water to hear the tag. The great thing is, you know, they're listening constantly, you know, 24 hours a day. 
So there was a sawfish project in the Bahamas. So so here's a fish tagged in, in the Florida Keys with this acoustic tremolo, this pinging tag, and then it's detected over in the Bahamas. Um, so in, in the... With the bad news, so we got a whole bunch of fish tagged in the Florida Keys, and now there was an acoustic tremolo project going on in the Bahamas in Andros. The bad news is um, there was a lot of drama with the Bahamas. They really stopped research in the Bahamas. You might not have heard about this here from in the fishing industry, Tom. But anyway, um, there was like a cutoff where the Bahamas like, hey, no more research, not now. We're not getting any more permits, no research, no nothing. And it was like a two or three year gap. So this that Why project had that? to end. Well, there was some drama. I don't know the details as much as I, as I should, but um, I think they just felt like maybe the Bahamas folks were being taken advantage of or the scientists were communicating as effectively to the Bahamas people doing the permit. It seemed overkill. But anyway, so there was only a seven month. The reason I'm going into this, there was a seven month window where acoustic tummy tag fish were in the Florida Keys swimming around and they were listing devices in the Florida Keys and they're listing devices in the Bahamas. And then that project ended. Well, um, even now it hasn't picked up yet now. So that's a whole nother drama. What they're, I think now the Bahamas is slowly letting research come back to the Bahamas. But they say, we're not getting any more permits, no more research. But anyway, there's only a seven month window, which is a bummer because I think as the project is more more fish were being tagged in, in the Florida Keys, I think I like to think there would have been more recaptures, other fish that moved over from Florida to the Bahamas. Um, but anyway, um, but if you don't have a listing station in the water, you're not getting any data. You're not going to hear. Like you have to have a right. you have to have an ear there, right? So that's a, the there's pros and cons to every um, tag movement. So we have three right now. So three. So two acoustic, two um, you know spaghetti tags, and then that acoustic telemetry. But I want to go into some of the interesting coincidence. Well, they're probably not coincidences, but uh, some of the data we got back from this. So first of all, um, we've had bonefish go from Biscayne Bay all the way down to Key West. So that distance, making over 100 miles. Well, first of all, you think, well, maybe that's an outlier. And outliers, you cut out outlier. You don't, you don't include them with your other data. But if you look at it, actually, those were not outliers. Those fish that went from Florida to the to the Bahamas to Andros, it was over 100 miles. But we've seen that distance in Florida. So it, it, it falls at the same distribution. Outliers usually like, here's a point here, and here's a point way, way, way over here. So it matches up with the distribution that we've seen in Florida. We've so certainly seen fish make... You would know that they, the, the ones that you know went from Key Largo to Key West, that's an acoustic tag or a spaghetti tag Those or both? Those were spaghetti tags, spaghetti okay. tag, or both. Actually, now they're seeing it more with the acoustic telemetry because um, now because now there's... It, it's So I guess I'm going to give away my age, but when I did it, it was like, okay, I had acoustic telemetry. I, I had receivers around Biscayne Bay, but now there's so many different projects going on. It's really exciting. That's, there's that's what I was going to ask because I know that in a previous podcast we had talked about uh this with with another scientist i think the fiu people and they were talking about jack crevels and they were saying yeah, that yeah. um once you put an acoustic tag in a fish that any other study that has acoustic listening stations will upload the data and you might get a notification that your fish was found and i guess that's what you were referencing with the sawfish program uh yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah, how that yeah. was picked up so you wouldn't even like the question would obviously be well if you don't have a listening station in the bahamas because no one thought that they went there then how would you ever know but it's because there yeah, are studies yeah, going yeah, yeah. on for other fish that picked up the the uh, the acoustic ping 
that we yeah, would know exactly. for sure. Exactly. All right, Joe, yeah, just yeah, to yeah, just yeah. to clarify that for everybody. And then another thing that was interesting to go on a side note: one of those Florida Keys uh, tag bonefish got got detected by one of those devices in Tampa. Tampa. So okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Only one so far, but so it really is. It's, it's a, a brave new world. It's really exciting because there's so many other listing stations around. They're all around the Gulf. There's people doing lobster, doing goliath grouper. And then, doing... then, as a scientist, tell us how that would how you would find out that one of your fish that you're studying or one of uh, a fish that you tagged would show up somewhere else like how does that data get uploaded and is there you just get an email yeah, notification yeah. like you get a like a like an email or like what would that be like yeah now there's a there's a website that goes through and you can you can upload it and you'll be contacted when there it's okay. someone that actually organizes and communicates with everyone and one central place like hey i got you'll get your data like oh i got tagged 52 and it'll go to this, this website and then oh there's a it'll connect that 52 is uh john smith at this university so back in the day, you know, it was funny when I was doing it, um, it was just, I had receivers in Biscayne Bay, uh, Biscayne National Park, and there was also a nurse shark one going down in Tortugas. And sure enough, this is, I had a tag that was like 532. I'm like, I don't have a bonefish tag 532. Turns out it was a nurse shark that was tagged in a dry tortugas that wow. swam up into Biscayne National Park. So back in the old day, you go back and you you contact the tag manufacturer, say, hey, can you tell me who tag number 532 is? And they'll go back to their database and, oh, that's Wes Pratt from Mo Marine Lab. And I reached out to him and all that. But now it's much more organized. They have a website you can upload your data and communication, and everyone communicates, hey, I got this tag. You know, they upload it. So it's really fascinating because people working on lobster, working on fish, working on – and they're all using the same type of equipment, very similar tags, so they're being detected. So it's 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 much more exciting now. Okay. And that's how that, that sawfish project picked up that, that bonefish over there. So – that's cool. But the but to go through so you know you you get these you get a lot more um questions and answers. So we had three bonefish that went over there. So the you know, first question like were they alone? I don't think so. Like if I'm a bonefish across the Gulf Stream, I sure as hell I'm not doing it alone, right? And we know they're schooling fish, right? They join, you know, other schools. So so I don't think they're doing it alone. And you know, we think of them as a most of the time um, a bottom dwelling fish. But I don't think they're on the bottom. If you look at the, the cross section of the, the Straits of Florida there, below about 200 meters, it gets really, really cold. So, and then bonefish have a threshold of about 15 degrees Celsius. So they're, they're not on the bottom. They're not, they would freeze to death. They're not following the bottom. So they're up in the water column somewhere. I'm really confident of that because there's no way they're going on the bottom of the, of the Gulf Stream. It's too cold. So they're up there, and you know, I always joke, um, I had a joke years ago, like, I used to hear people, well, yeah, bonefish are great marlin baits. <laughs> well, maybe marlin eat them, you they know, I mean, maybe, maybe they're eating them. And then um, Glenda Kelly told me a story, I never was able to verify it, but there was a wahoo someone caught in the Gulf Stream, and in its belly was a bonefish. So, like, a cut-in-half bonefish. Like, I always wish I, this is before cell phones and... Now we have everyone has a, a camera in their pocket, right? But anyway, so um, so yeah, it was a big wahoo and had a bonefish in its belly. It was a story I got from going to Kelly from IGFA. But anyway, um, so yeah, they're they're probably schooling over there. They're not going in the bottom. And then then another question is why Andros? Like Bimini is closer. Yeah. Right. So like, if you, I think Bimini's like, I mean, could be 50 to 90 miles from where you are in the Keys. Andros is even, you know, even further away, you know, like why maybe. What, but, what know, are the listening capabilities in Bimini? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm not aware of any. Um, so you're right. So maybe you're, that's what it them, is, right? Yeah, you're okay. right. You're right. But but also there's you know those guides over there. At least the, the tagged bonefish, whatever the anchor tagged fish, were never were captured in Bimini. But you're right. But you, that, you, yeah, you but I mean, I, listen, I, I man. The, if the whole government is saying we don't want any more research over here, and and you get a guide that catches a fish. I mean, he might just cut that thing off or, or be like, I don't know what that is, yeah, or just yeah. let it go or not yeah. know what to do with it or not care or or feel like if he reports it, then that's somehow going to be bad for the Bahamas because that's that seems to be what, you know, if that's they the if they outline, yeah, right. if they outlaw uh, for whatever their own reasons were, they outlaw uh, research because they feel like it's not in the Bahamas' best interest for whatever reason. Who knows why? But, True. It, but that, that would be echoed through the guides, too, I think, because they listen to the guides. The government yeah, I, listens to the guides in the Bahamas and they make suggestions. And then they, you know, like that whole thing with the with the fishing license that you were supposed to have. Uh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, that was I don't know. But but to go through dummy reptile, but this was back before this happened. So this is when in the 2000s, when um, when when we had the all those fish in swimming through the Florida Keys with those, um, the anchor tag, you know, spaghetti tag, then there was a lot of research. Bahamas certainly opened. So this was certainly the case. Now, now currently, yeah, and I, I wouldn't say they're outlawing research, but they stop research, but they're, they're slowly, I hear stories of them trickling back in. But, but, you know, but a lot of goes in the, you know, uh, the spaghetti tag, right? So one, you have to tag the fish. The person has to report, hey, I tagged this so-and-so fish, which I think we had great um, group people that did that in the Florida Keys. But two, the fish has to, well, there's a lot, there's other factors, right? The fish has to be recaptured. So someone in the Bahamas has to recapture it. And then the other factor is they have to report it, right? right? So here's a 1-800 number, but here, you know, what, what if somebody's on an owl island in the Bahamas on a sailboat, they catch a tag fish and, oh, I forgot to write down the tag number. Or So there's the recapture rate. There's a reporting rate, right? They have to report it. And there's also a tag shed rate. So I put, when I when I was working on that study at the Miami Sea Aquarium, I caught bonefish and tagged them. And after about a year and a half, the fish lose the tag. Mm. And it's not the tag. So I also put tags in concrete and put a, put a screen around them. The tags are fine. And I actually, I actually saw some, some bonefish at the Miami Sea Aquarium they would they would rub it off. They would actually go against the side and rub the thing off. So so another thing, the tag has to stay on the fish, right? So um, and they'd suddenly so after about a year and a half, like ninety nine percent of the tags are gone. Unfortunately, they just rub it off, or it comes off with algae or whatever. So, but but yeah, the, the interesting is interesting. Like why were they recaptured there? And another thing, of those three fish, the two spaghetti tag and the one acoustic telemetry. They were tagged like over over ninety miles from each other in in Florida, but then they were were captured within within about twenty five miles of each other. So it's like you have this big area over here where they're they're tagged in different areas, but then they were captured in a smaller space. So I I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm -hmm. You know why Andros and why in this like middle Andros bite area are they being are all three of those fish being recaptured? I don't know the answer why. Have, have you fished Andros? No, no, I always want to go there. I was okay, very well, lucky to fish. <laughs> I've I've been there to that middle bite yeah. right where you're talking about. Uh -huh. There are a lot of bonefish there. <laughs> like <laughs> that's that's where they want to go, right? It's like uh, like for people, like why why is all of a sudden there's this there's this uh, collection of of a ton of people in February at this one little place? Well, it's the Super Bowl, 
right? Like that's where that's where the people go for whatever reason. And that it seems like I mean, when you know, knowing the guides over there, Andy Smith and some of the other guides over in, in Andros, I mean, middle bite, that's the that's the spot. And the other thing is like um like what caused them to move over there? Is it spawning? Is there food habitat? Um there is certainly some documented spawning events um with bonefish over in Andros. Um during those times between before between the fish were um, tagged and recaptured, there were some hurricanes that went by, some storms. And you think of hurricanes, you know, going from east to west, mm-hmm. but not always the case. Like like Wilma was one of the ones that occurred between when Joe Gonzalez tagged the fish and when it was recaptured by Brian Harris. And Wilma went went west to east. Right. So um, I mean, it, it actually pushed right through. I'm not saying that's the reason, but, but then you have a ton of storms that come in from the west or from the east. They hit Cuba and then turn almost due north yes, and come straight. Yes, yes. that straight can push up. them there too, right? Yeah, right. yeah. So I got all this, these reasons. You know, is it are they going up for, for spawning? Or did a hurricane storm push them over there? These are I don't know the answer to these, but these are all things that we were considering in the, in discussing in the paper. Another thing, there's a really um, there's a lot of the geologists at University of Miami always talk about Andros has these. It's kind of hard to describe these whitings, like these big mudding events um, in during the wintertime off the um, off the west side of Andros. So they were saying, like, maybe it's they go over there for the, the these mudding events where the wind will stir up these, these mud areas. I've never um, physically seen it, but the geologists say there's something real special about the, the geology of the west side of Andros. And we know bonefish, you know, live in mud, right? Or they take advantage of mud and and um, not not shy of being in, in muddy mud situations. But um, yeah, is it spawning or, or, but, and and it also opens the question is um, like, how, how does a bonefish, you know, they don't have, they don't have GPS trackers like we do, right? Like how does a bonefish that's in Key, let's say Joe's, for example, it's in Key West. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Key Biscayne, Key Biscayne. How does it know how to cross the Gulf Stream? How does it know to get to Andros? And um, I, I've looked in the literature and there's all different examples of fish using landmarks for navigation using the stars, celestial cues for navigation, using the currents, using magnetic fields. Hammerhead sharks are a big example of that. They can detect a magnetic field and use it for navigation. Um, is it the smells? There are certain smells or sound. Is there salinity? Um, I don't think it's one thing. I, I personally think it's um, multiple things. Maybe it's uh, that current. They know they have to go, you know, counter to the to the current of the yeah. of the Gulf Stream. Maybe it's I mean, we've asked detection. these questions, uh, uh, and it's very common for salmon to go to the same place where they were they were born, right? Like that's that's yeah. now yeah, common yeah, knowledge. Yeah. But it, when yeah. when it comes to something like a bonefish, that oh, I can't believe they go a hundred miles away. I mean, maybe they go a thousand miles away. Who knows? Yeah, like, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but uh, we, we know that other fish are have you know this capability. And then when it comes to tarpon, we know that tarpon migrate because they're easy to see. You can track their movements really easily um, through fishing guides and other people that are saying, "Well, there's tons here now." And then next week there aren't many there. And but if you go up or down the coast, that's where they that's where they are. So. We know that about so many fish. I don't know why it would be any kind of surprise that it, that a bonefish would have the same capabilities. Yeah, yeah it's trying to keep open mind, right? They go to. We know they are captured in Andros, but maybe maybe that's an that's a function of uh, fishing effort, right? Maybe there's you know, higher fishing effort there. What about Mexico? Like, if they can go to Andros, they could go right over to the Yucatan. Is there any evidence of that happening? 
I have not, I have not seen that, but you know, I've been proven wrong before, you know, <laughs> and another thing. So, um, so when this first recapture happened, this, this Joe Gonzalez, Brian Harris recapture, you know, I gave a presentation at a scientific conference and published a paper on it. And it really kind of had to get buzzing going and a lot more tagging occurred. So in Hawaii, they started tagging bonefish in Hawaii, same, same tags and everything. And in Hawaii, they bonefish, now it's a different species. It's Albiola, I think, Vergata. As we have primarily albiola vulpes in the Keys. But anyway, different species of bonefish, but still an albiola. But anyway, they had bonefish um, in Hawaii go between the islands as well. So it's it just further evidence that bonefish can make these long-distance movements over over deep water. Hmm. Very cool. But yeah, I'm, I'm keeping open my mind. Maybe they go to all over the Bahamas. You know, I just kind of keep it open. Maybe they go to Mexico. You know, maybe, you know. But It's I, kind I, of disappointing, actually, to hear you say that, that, that the, the scientists were – close-minded about this like no that can't happen that guy's lying to you or whatever it seems like a scientist uh the scientific method would be i'll 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 make a judgment of with what the data tells me data right? yeah, yeah 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 i don't I'm, yeah. i might go in with a i mean i think that that would be like what a scientist is supposed to do is like you don't have any sort of bias and if you do yeah, then you your- have to put that aside and just say wow you got a recapture over there are we sure yeah, yeah, that that's yeah. the yeah. case? Um, I don't know. I mean, does that surprise you? But you see it everywhere. Like even in the the, the Egyptian pyramids, like there's some there's some information coming out now <laughs> that maybe maybe we have uh, you know the the timeline that we have on the pyramids might not be correct. And boy, you'll have some people that are just like, no way. Right, like that is not possible. But yeah, yeah, and I gotta admit, it was it was a small number, but I did have two professors at University of Miami come up to me and just say, "That's BS." I just like they just straight up they think I'm, they thought I was like lying or something. Like <laughs> anyway, but you're right, you're right. Just scientific, you gotta keep it open and and um and do what, what the data. And I'm still trying to keep it open, right? Like like what if they go like this was one way, right? Far to the Bahamas. What if they go the other way, right? Why can't they go from Bahamas to Florida? I'm still keeping that open. Like, we would have to tag a bunch of fish over there and see if they come over. But just keep an, keep an open mind. Any anything's possible, you right. know. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought that that some you know some of the fishermen um, do do have an open mind in some of those cases, and it's like um, you know where where why aren't there bonefish in Key West? You know, back when I started guiding in Key West, there were very few bonefish there. And even back then, people were like, man, I don't know, maybe they go to Mexico or Cuba or something. And they get netted down there. or Who knows, man? But they used to be here, and then all of a sudden, there, there weren't any. And then now, mm-hmm. the bone fishing in Key West is is fabulous. It's amazing. It's the best place in all of the Keys to go bone fishing is is now Key West. So how does that happen? Like, there's there's just this resurgence of a, of a fishery that once basically didn't really exist and then it existed before that like there's ebbs and flows of everything but i always i I thought that at least the fishermen were being open-minded enough to go well if they if they were here and then all of a sudden they're not then somebody probably caught them somewhere like all of them in a big net you know maybe they're after a different species and they catch them all like it seems like if you're if you have a schooling fish like a like a redfish or a mullet or a bonefish and you're out there purseining and you happen to get in the right place where this unfortunate giant school of fish is, seems like they're gonna get every one of them. Right? Yeah, they could, they could, yeah, yeah. 
But, you know, to take a step back, I feel like we're, we're constantly learning. When, um, when we first started putting um, tags in bonefish, the belief was, it was, say, you know, Amarada and just in Florida, Amarada and Biscayne National Park. Um, even then, we had we had the first, within a year, we had a fish that went from um, Biscayne Bay down to Amarada. And that one, that's like the, that one received a lot of criticism, like, oh, no, 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 somebody, either somebody's lying or somebody brought that down. But then we started getting like, like you know, getting probably a hundred fish that did that, right? So it is like, well, eventually it can't always be one person drawing or driving it down, multiple people. And we have fish going back and forth. We have fish going from Amrata up to Biscayne Bay. Right. So you look at the mixing rate. So eventually that, that calmed down. But, you know, I guess when you bring something new, the first response is no, that's crap you know but eventually as you get more data you know you can kind of you can like yeah you can criticize me but this is what i got i have no i have no reason to not include it no reason to look at it and it also makes me wonder like i did in my dissertation just because i want to go in with my committee i said okay look a small number of bonefish go from florida bahamas i don't want to go go down that rabbit hole but in reality, I don't know. I don't know if it's less than five percent that make that movement, or maybe it's fifty percent. I really don't don't know. So sorry, I'm wow. interesting. Quick on my phone, but so what does that really mean to us? Or do you have more information on this this study? I think if, if that's the case, I think we should for management we should manage them the same. Like we should. Um, it shows that you have a maybe you have one unit stock, like meaning maybe or unit stock is a scientific nerd, but uh, maybe one population, right? Like maybe we always think, and I, I'm guilty of this. Like okay, a Florida Keys population and a Bahamas population. But now we have data that's showing mixing, so maybe I think, you know, do a joint management plan, you know, similar size limit, similar bag limit, or a lack of, or similar regulations, like they should be mandated as one unit. Like they do a lot that a lot of that with um, tuna, because tuna don't respect their national borders either. Yeah, you know? I would think so. though, that it's like, that, that the, the amount of bonefish that people are keeping through fishing is not the problem in this situation. I would think that the problem is, commercial fishing that that in a method that is so effective like a purse saying that you, you know it's not like yeah. if you're going to hook and line bonefish out in the middle of the ocean i mean how many are you going to catch like okay that's not going to be detrimental to the population like if you were to see a giant school of fish from a spotter airplane and surround it with a net and you get every single one of them, which is a very common fishing method for cer certain fish, seems like bonefish would show up equally as well if they were in the top part of the water column. Not that anyone is targeting those necessarily, but you can make cat food out of any fish, right? Like, so <laughs> how, I mean, that, that would seem like the most uh, detrimental to a spawning population of like, okay, if we found out that they were spawning in a certain area would there be a way to maybe regulate a certain type of commercial fishing during that time and and you know those people that are that that are commercially fishing maybe they're purse saining for something else they're, that's not that's just bycatch which maybe it's valuable to them at some point but it's not like all of a sudden you see bonefish showing up on menus everywhere in the in the world because they came across a spawning population of fish but that seems more like what I would think is, is, you know, for the overall population of the fish, if you could protect them against some sort of a fishing technique like that, 
which I don't but, know if it's but possible. I'm going to pick on you, Tom, to keep an open mind. There's a classic example of uh, Snook in Florida where, you know, they closed commercial harvest, but the population was still declining <laughs> because of, of just guys like you and me. The recreational fishery can certainly have a significant impact. Oh, I believe it can. Yes, for sure. If you, have, if you have a million people, okay, they kill one fish a year. That's a million dead fish, right? So it's like, um, so it could be, I mean, I'm saying both, but, um, you know, the recreational fishing, from what I've seen and from my experience, and I, I criticize myself, I like to consider myself a recreational angler, but, you know, I am I am making a difference. I'm, I'm certainly killing fish, even accidentally, like catching early, there is release mortality, right? Yeah. If you have enough people doing it, you can certainly put a dent in the population from that. Yeah, and I believe that for sure. Um, so what, uh, other than... Um, managing the population as a whole, would there be any um, po- possibility or, or, I mean, how would someone that thought, well, if they can go to the Bahamas, then could they go to Mexico or could they go to Cuba? Is there any way that I could put listening devices over there or find out if there are listening devices? Or, like, is there any way that somebody does that? Or do you have to get all new funding for a whole new study? Um or, or maybe they're already listening to devices over there and they're not picking up any fish. I don't know. Yeah. No, they're, um, that's a good question. I'm not aware of any listening devices currently in, in, in Cuba. Like, for example, like Cuba. But I could be wrong. I could just be um, 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 just not up to speed on that. So, um, but, yeah, I mean, I feel like the future looks so bright with, with more and more projects going on. And uh, I know there certainly are some in Puerto Rico, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um there's, so, we've never picked up a fish that went from the United States to Puerto Rico? Not yet. What about tarpon? <laughs> what about tarpon? Um, well, there was a, there was a, a satellite. See, tar- tarpon, you have the big advantage of, um, you can do telemetry tagging, and they have done that, and so a lot of movements in Florida. But you also do satellite tagging. But there was, um, to go back to the spaghetti tag, there was a, a long-term spaghetti tag project in tarpon. And there was a fish that went from, like, North Carolina to, um, to Cuba. Hmm. So there was a tarpon that made that movement. Wow. So there's only one, but, you know. but again, I recovered one to... one spaghetti tag in a tarpon. And I never, got, really? any, yeah, okay. and I never got any information on it. I still have pictures of that tag, um, but I never got any information on it. Because yeah, you know that it had a num it had numbers on it, but it didn't have a phone number. It didn't have like, and this is before the internet or whatever. But I didn't have any way of knowing who I should call, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and the tag yeah. looked really old, and it had a lot of marine growth on it. We got the marine growth off of it, took pictures of it, and I didn't ever know what to do with it. Like, that's there was no phone number. There's nothing to call. There's no way to. I didn't know what what it was. Yeah, that goes back to the reporting rate, right? Like the recapture rate is one, but the reporting rate, did you, I mean, yeah, there's no, nowadays. I, 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 like, I didn't know who to report it to. Yeah, I would yeah, have been yeah, happy yeah, to report yeah, it, but there's yeah. no, nothing, uh, no information on that. Now there's, you probably scan a QR code on the thing and, <laughs> and, and report it. Um, you know, I, uh, back in those days when I, when I caught that uh, fish with that tag, I also uh, occasionally, more than once, would find these little glass vials all over the place, and they were obviously scientific um, research going on. Someone, I think maybe you might have told me before oh, that they, that could have been. Were they floating at the surface? Yes, they were floating at the surface, and and we oh. were, and it was in kind of tarpon season, so we would be out there, kind of staked out, and we see these things floating by. I'm like, what are those things? Like, did a cruise ship like drop them, or did a container 
open up with these little little it almost looked like a little um you know a timer with sand in it where you turn it over and the sand drips okay, down okay. but a little one okay. like it was about three inches long and it was a glass vial with just like a little piece of paper in it and uh i didn't know what to do with those either we we recovered some of them there wasn't like a phone number i no. heard about that project years ago there was a student that worked on that someone told me that that was a project that measured the current like they put those in um in florida bay and they did some sort of study like this i heard about where they they dispersed those all through florida bay and then they were counting where you know where it all came out and and it looked like long key bridge was like the funnel um, where most of those from all of Florida Bay, the, the water flowed out Long Key Bridge most. More so than Seven Mile Bridge? I don't know. It'd be interesting to see that study and see if that's actually true because that's that's total bro science right there that I just heard that from another <laughs> fishing guide who probably fishes at Long Key Bridge. And he's like, that's why the fishing's so good here because more current comes through here than any other place. Uh, it's a good story. you know. I don't know if it's true. But anyway, but I read a paper once of that. It might have been the same study where they actually dumped a bunch in the dry tortugas to look at. Okay, if you have spawning, the, the focus was if you have spawning in the dry tortugas, where would the larvae go mm -hmm. to? Yeah. But it's very, it's very, but nowadays we have much more information because it's like you're, you're assuming that that larvae is just a floating blob, right? Right. Whereas nowadays it's great. There's much more. There's a, the people are incorporating movement dynamics into the fish, like meaning the larvae can swim, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was like back in the seventies and eighties. They did they did that. Maybe in the nineties. That's interesting that you saw that. But now maybe, we know much maybe more. they would have. Maybe those little vials would have come from dry tortugas because we were in Key West. We were right on the west yeah, yeah, west yeah. of Key West. They could have come what from there. What year was that? Do you remember? Um, that would have probably been like uh, early two thousands. Like okay, sometime okay. in there. Um, In fact, they're, 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 some of the people, I guess I'm biased because I saw the people do it, you remind me, but they'll actually take larvae, they'll put them in a big like glass, they'll put them on the Gulf Stream, and they'll put them in a big glass um, tube to protect them from some fish eating and put a camera on top hmm. to, to look at those, look at that swimming dynamic. Like, really? The, but back in the day, we didn't know that. Back in the day, it was just a bottle floating, like a right. message in a bottle. Well, that it was, would right? it be, um, like, would, it, would the movement of something on the surface be the same as if something was, you know, 50 feet, 100 feet below the surface or even deeper. Like, I don't know. Like, uh, you have wind and, and all kinds of yeah, yeah, yeah. factors. I would, think, I would think, no, I think there's so much more of these movements, especially, I guess, on my bias, but bonefish and tarpon um, larvae are excellent swimmers. Mm. So they're they're moving up and down. They're moving left, right. So um, some of the fish, I think it would be, you know, it's just essentially they have poor swimming ability. They are floating. But some of the other fish, I think it'd be drastically different yeah. because of their swimming ability. Yeah. So, um, okay. Well, you got other information in there. Or you want to move on to knots? Yeah, I guess move on to knots. That's my summary. Okay. I'm well, that's that's else. really cool, man. I appreciate you bringing that that on. It's interesting. Fun fact: the first story that you told uh, about Brian Harris, Joe Gonzalez, and yourself, all three uh, podcast alumni. Oh, so Brian oh, Harris oh, is actually, on here too. Oh, sorry, Brian Harris oh, was no. not a podcast alumni. Okay, okay, but, uh, okay. Uh, he, Joe I fished was. with him. So interesting. Okay, yeah. Okay. I had Joe. Small on. fishing world. Yeah. 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 Joe Gollin. Joe Gonzalez, man. Joe what Gonzalez. a legend. Yeah. RIP. RIP to him for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
anyway, okay. So what about knots? You've been tying knots or what? I have. Well, I look at. I always look at. You know, your podcast coming out with different knots, and I know you have. Um, I seen on Waypoint you have like knot videos. Yes. So I want to uh, pick your brain. Hey, let me ask you: as your mind changes, as you asked me earlier, yeah. um, how, like, are there certain knots you use now? Like now that you know the data, like, oh, I'll never use that knot again. Or I mean, right. completely change the knots that you use. Yes. So uh, it's very interesting that you asked this because we're right in the middle of of putting this thing together to where it's one thing to learn how to tie all the knots. It's another thing to say that that's a good knot. And it's a third thing to test the knot and actually come up with a percentage breaking strength. And then it's an even different thing to put all this into a, a, a table to where you can clearly see that like you have your, your knots that are designed for braid to fluorocarbon, say. Okay, so this one, test number one, this one, number two, this one, number three, and you go to your knot and you're like, um, like uh, I like the Aussie Quickie, you know, and how did that do? And, ah, wow, that's not anywhere nearly as strong as this other one up here. But, you know, what, what I've learned is that those tests have shown me which one is the strongest, consistently. But then there are also other factors that you have to, like a lot of people will ask me, like, why do you have to know so many knots? Well, first of all, uh, the double you know. uni knot will, will handle most fishing situations, and it is one of the strongest knots that you can tie. It actually won over the FG knot in our, in our little tournament, but most of the time when I tie the FG knot and the double uni knot, the FG knot will win uh, by a, a, a pretty good margin like that that knot the fg is one of the knots that tests over a hundred percent most of the time which means that if you have 40 pound uh fluorocarbon and you have 20 pound braid and you're going to try to attach these together it should break more than the 20 pound stated strength of the of the braid right and most knots if you're tying 20 pound to anything else you'll get it to where it breaks at 18 pounds or 17 pounds or sometimes 12 pounds. That's a bad knot if it tests at 12 pounds, obviously, because that's, mm -hmm. that's almost 50%, right? But then you can have these other ones that test at like 104%, and it broke, but it broke in the braid. The knot didn't break. Like, it broke in the line, and you test it three or four times. It breaks in the line every single time. That's a knot that tells me this knot is stronger than the line. Like the connection between this and the fluorocarbon leader is stronger than the line itself because it wow, will break okay. in the line every single time. So that's a 100% knot or an over 100% knot. There are only a few of those. I've seen the double uni knot do it uh, on occasion. The FG knot does it almost every time. It will test over that. But then there are then this is why you would need to know multiple knots because the FG knot is a great knot for you to tie at your tying bench where you have good light. You can sit there and tie it. Now, obviously, if you're if you're a mate and this is the knot that you like and you're tying it 30 times a day, every day in every condition, you're going to get really good at it. But for the rest of the people out there, a double uni is going to be way easier to tie out on the water than an FG knot. So and I feel like the WUNI, like, I, I'm, what about Albright in that mix? An, Albright, you, an Albright is a very strong knot, and it will, um, man, I don't have the, uh, Ben, do you have the the, um, the the sheet up? Could you pull it up? Maybe we can put like it, maybe we can, was... we can, uh, uh, Ben has this, uh, this, this sheet that we're working on, and we're going to make a downloadable guide 
where it'll be a free download just to help people. And the way that the way that this is really going to help is like it's one thing to go to the YouTube and see me tie one and then see somebody else tie one and then see somebody else tie one and then say, well, I, I think I kind of like that one. But what this guide that we're putting together will do, it'll show you every knot that we've tied and how it tested in comparison to the other knots and then links to each video. Right. So so that you can you don't have to sort through YouTube and everything. And this is what it's looking like right now. But I think the uh, the Albright. um, Do you see the Albright on there? It's really great. You got the you got the line you used. Yeah, you got all. So we're not we haven't done the Albright. Well, it's not in this. It's not in this um, thing yet, but it will be. But in my experience, the Albright and the Alberto knot are both uh, in the in the 90. 93 to 96% not. So really good, but not as good as the double uni and the um, FG, in my opinion, for braid to monofilament. I mean, braid to okay. fluorocarbon or braid to monofilament. Okay. So Yeah, have you seen any difference? Like, does it matter fluorocarbon or monofilament? I think a fluorocarbon mono are very similar. Like, there there are of... some differences. And, and then when you go to some of these knots, there's differences even in the manufacturer of the line and what, what, even even within the manufacturer, say you like you find some uh, a manufacturer that you really like and you really trust. Like for me, that's Daiwa. I use Daiwa J Fluoro all the time, but they have several different types of J Fluoro. They have some that are what they call 16 carrier and eight carrier, and so they'll have like smoother lines, and then they'll have what are like rougher lines. And so with like the, a knot like the FG knot. A super slick, real smooth one does not. It, it it is more likely to slip. I mean, imagine that that you mm. have a surface that's super slick, and you try to put something on it, and then you imagine you have a real matte surface, and you try to put something on it. One of them is going to slide off, and one of them is going to hold there. Well, you can find that you know for you know I may really like the way that this other line casts but my fg knot is stronger with the other line so i'll use i'll use the the rougher line for the if i have my choice right but you know a double uni knot is pretty much that's that's the go to but there are situations where that's not ideal in other words like where if you're going to be casting that line in and out of the guides all day long, an FG knot is going to be way smoother and way cleaner than than the double uni knot. So that's why you really need to learn a lot of different knots is because there are different applications. Maybe maybe you're in a situation to where there's some kind of weird algae on the surface or whatever, and you're you're you know if you have a knot that has a right angle uh, tag end to it, like a perfection mm-hmm. loop or mm-hmm. something like that. It's just catching this stuff all the time. And then you could have another knot that has a tag in that's parallel to the line, the standing line, and it doesn't catch anything. And you, you'll just find that, okay, for this application, that knot is not the best one for me. So if you're asking, like, what have I changed my mind on? Um, it changes all the time because as lines change and as the finish on fluorocarbon changes and the finish on braid changes – there may be a knot that I really, really liked and I was using a ton, but for whatever reason, that now slips with this ter- certain manufacturer. Or you need to move, you need to turn, like I will do like five turns on a on a, a clinch knot or on a double uni or whatever. And maybe this line is this line, new and improved line for this year, is a little slicker. And now maybe I have to put seven turns in there 
in order for it to not slip and to get the same testing. So I'm constantly testing and retesting as the new lines come out and deciding if what I was doing is still applicable and still the right knot and the right number of turns and the right application for this new fluorocarbon and the new uh, braid. And, you know, I, I kind of stick to, to Daiwa, um, but it would be... Well, you'd go crazy if you looked at all the You could. You would, right? you, you would go crazy, and it could be a full-time job to test, yeah. to tie all these knots. What you would need to do is, like, start with one and tie it with every manufacturer. I'm not going to do that because yeah. I kind of yeah, feel yeah, like yeah, yeah. I'm just going yeah. to do it with what, what I use so that I know what I'm using and yeah, then I have, I have 100% confidence yeah. in that. But, mm -hmm. but it, may, it, it makes such a difference because, like, I just go back to all the time that that in fishing like if you're trying to get good at fishing there are thing there are so many things that we cannot control we can't control the weather we can't control the water clarity we can't control whether the, the fish, fish bite sometimes. or sometimes if yeah. they're even there we can't control a cold front but then you know all of those things are are uncontrollable things but then there are things that you can control and that's your tackle and your knots, the type of line that you choose to buy, the type of line that you choose to use, the strength of that line, those things are controllable. And so when you go out there and you're hoping that you're going to have the greatest day ever or you've put all this research and time into where you're going to go and you've bought all the right tackle and you brought all this and then you choose a knot that is a 50% knot and you just thought this is a great knot because I saw it on YouTube or Instagram or whatever – but no one ever tested it, and you lose the one fish. You get one bite that day, and you lose it. Or even worse, you take your kid fishing, and your kid loses the fish, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, most people, uh, or there's a lot of people that a 50% knot would work fine because they don't understand the mechanics of the fishing rod well enough to actually put hundred percent pressure on the fish, right? So there's either too much bend in the rod. They don't know how to palm the the drag. You see this with a lot with with yeah, people yeah, that yeah. haven't fished in salt water for the first time. And so the first half a day is to teach them how to put more than two pounds of pressure on the fish, and they're pulling as hard as they can, but it's not translating to as hard as they can at the fish, at the fish. right? Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. once you know, but when you when you're you know going for world records and you're you're you know dealing with somebody that that understands how uh, how the pressure on a fishing rod works and to put maximum pressure and you're trying to catch a really large fish on really light tackle, the knots are the, it's, it's, it's the most important, the knot and the hook, because the hook can be the weak link in the, in the system too. Yeah. And in fact, I always, when I'm, especially when I'm fly fishing, I keep in my pocket, a um, a hook sharpener. Mm -hmm. It's probably more of a mental thing than an advantage, but I like to have sharp hooks. So when I, I do know. get that one bite, I can set the hook. Just, Absolutely. So it, 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 it gives me confidence in my head. Yeah, you know? <laughs> for sure. But it'll, it'll give you the same confidence to know that, you know, you've tied this, this leader or your connection, you know, to, to your braid or to your fly line is a hundred percent. It's as strong as it's going to get. So, you know, from there, you know, you've, you've controlled the things that you can control and they are as strong as you can possibly tie them. And then maybe you get a bite, maybe you don't. I don't know. But, but another, you know, another thing, like if I'm fishing dock lights, um, 
sometimes you don't want a hundred percent, right? Like when sure. I fish dock lights, like that thing's I'm not going to that dock to get that thing. Like well, I want it to break off. That's right? exactly right. And so there are knots like that too, where you can purposefully choose a weaker knot and and you can purposefully choose a weaker knot in a certain place. Like so you may have uh, fly fishing, you might go from your your fly line to your leader and you know that knot you wouldn't want that to be the weakest knot in the whole thing because if you break something off, you're losing the fly and the whole leader, right? Like that wouldn't make any sense. So you want that knot strong. Yeah, you yeah, want yeah. your your tapers down, and then you want like the fly. So ex- imagine that you're you're uh, cast into the bushes. You want the the knot at the fly. If you're going to have anything fail, it's going to be right there. So you just lose the fly. You maintain your whole leader and everything like that, and you can choose those knots like a like a Homer Road loop. That's a fifty percent knot, right? So if you got if you got twenty pound test, that's going to break at about ten, right? And uh, but you could tie another knot that's going to you could slightly change that Homer Road loop, and the next knot's going to be you know, 80%. And so when you pull that against a mangrove, you might break your leader way up. And now you got to tie a whole new leader to get back in the water. Right. So fishing guides have learned this really quick because if you're taking people that don't, don't fish a lot and they throw it in the bushes a lot, you just want them to lose the least amount of stuff that's possible. Right. And then, you know, if you, but if it breaks at the, the braid to fluorocarbon connection on a spinning rod, now you got to tie that and then tie everything. You know, yeah, everything yeah, else. Yeah. So uh, there are times where you would want a, a weaker knot, like you're oh, saying. Oh, yes. Specific question, because I just did this last week. I always say when you're doing a fly line to the leader, mm-hmm. do you do a nail knot? What do you do? Well, there that's another that's another um, uh, place where there are choices, right? So most fly lines these days come with a welded with a loop. loop, right? So they call it a welded loop. It's already turned over, and then then the plastic of the fly line is over the top of it. It's pretty strong. It really is. It's pretty strong. I've tested those too, and they do tend to test almost as strong as the fly line. Um, so, but what's going to happen there is you're going to have to go for the loop to loop connection. So, the next loop that you're going to tie in the fluorocarbon or monofilament leader is either going to be like a perfection loop or a double surgeon's loop or something. And that knot presents a problem because it has a tag in that either is at a right angle, which does not go through. If it, you know, if it's 50 or 60 pound monofilament or fluorocarbon in your butt section, that short little one millimeter tag in gets caught on all the guides coming in. So if you're having to bring that in and you're la- trying to land fish after fish up, you know, with that, or you're reeling in to go to a new spot, but now but every but time yeah. you have to get that out. So if that's if if that becomes the chief concern, like I want a smooth connection going in and out for whatever reason, I'm going to be moving a lot of different spots, and I just want to be able to pull it out. You can cut that welded loop off and go with a go with a nail knot, and then you can even put some glue over the top of it. They have like Zappa Gap or these yeah, gap filling too. glues yeah. that will like form a little bubble over it. So you can actually create like the smoothest connection. Right. Yes, like a like a smooth, super smooth connection there. And that's where it goes back to well, okay, now am I going to do that with tarpon fishing? Probably not. I'm going to maybe cut off the welded loop, and then I'm going to double the loop over myself, and I'm going to tie three three nail knots on that because I know from my testing that that will be a stronger connection than the manufactured loop 
Or I just look at that and I go, am I going to trust my entire day or week or everything to this? I don't know. I mean, you know, there's probably a fly line manufacturer out there that would challenge me and say, yeah, it's stronger than the line. That connection's stronger than the line. I believe that it might be, but I know that I've never had one fail when I do it myself with three, three, you know, blood knot or three uh, nail knots. Yeah, that's, but you're still doing a loop to loop connection. I like it. I, I think a loop to loop is, is definitely the strongest but like I say, is if, if you are fishing a really long leader and every time that you're landing a fish, you're having to bring that leader all the way to the, to the reel. Like say you're using a 20 foot leader, you're, you've got a nine foot fly rod and you're going to get it close to the boat. You're going to be, you're going to be, the leader's going to be all the way in the rod. So if that becomes a real problem to get it back out of the rod, then I'm going to choose a different knot. I was always under, uh, I guess, the mindset, which I've never tested, but I guess I've believed that, you know, like that a loop-to-loop -loop could act as like a, I don't know, a hinge, and there may be more flexibility in the leader, and it may interrupt I mean, your accuracy. There, there or, could be. There could be that. I, it, you know, if you watch it um, in slow motion, which you can easily do, like record a fly cast in slow motion these days, I don't see that it's hinging much. I think that the more important thing is to match – the diameter of the fly line and the diameter of the butt section of your leader should be similar. But then you can also have very stiff fluorocarbon or monofilament in relation to the, to the fly line. So when I'm going to choose my butt, butt section material, it's going to be of about the same di diameter as the fly line and about the same uh, stiffness of the fly line so that when that does unroll, that's where I think you're going to get the, the real... Um, hinge effect is like if you were using a super stiff like mason hard hard monofilament oh, uh, okay. on a okay. on a fly line that's very flexible and it goes out there and then all of a sudden you, you hit this stiff part that you're going to have the the leader kind of kick up but honestly most people are lucky to even get the leader to unroll uh, <laughs> you know but but if you do it right and you tie the leader in a way that you, it, it can enhance your ability to make the, the thing unroll where you can take a, a fly caster that's really, really great and he's going to make any leader unroll, right? So, of course, that person is super detail-oriented because he already knows, like, well, I, I want to I'm, – I'm a really good caster, but I also want to put every advantage in my favor, right? So I'm going to use the right butt section. I'm going to use the right leader. I'm going to do that, where you have these other people that are super worried about uh, which butt section they use, but they literally can't cast 40 feet and they can't unroll it no matter what the leader is. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a fine line there to where you want to be a good enough caster to get it done and then put as many things in your advantage as possible. Right. So that it makes it easier to, to unroll the leader like you, like you want. Yeah. I got you. Good point. Good point. Because I only I like to I actually go back of of the loop to loop because I have I have one nine weight reel so like if I'm using oh I have to you know before I go fishing night before I put a leader on but maybe I want to go with a ten pound test or you know I don't want a thick leader on it I don't mm -hmm. want a shock yeah so I you know I'm always messing with my leader but if I loop to loop I could just okay I'll unroll unloop this one and put well, a you, new one you on you definitely you know? can do that yes for sure and uh, and and that makes a big difference like if you were going to go from fishing for bonefish and you thought, well, maybe I might see some barracudas out there or something like that. You could have a loop to loop uh, to where you could, you could, you know, loop on one that loop on a little butt section that has wire on it 
and a whole yeah, fly, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like that's how we used to do it with tarpon. Like we would have the before. Um, we used to have the tarpon stretcher cases, you know, where you have to, this is before fluorocarbon came out, but we would use monofilament and you would have to keep it under tension to keep it perfectly straight. And you would have to stretch it or heat it up with water to get it perfectly straight. And so that we would have these, these cases Stretchers, where the fly yeah. was already on there. Then you would have this, the, the, the shock tippet, and then it would be held by, by elastic band to keep it a little bit under tension. Then we would have the, the, the class tippet all rolled up. And so when we wanted to change a fly, we would just go loop to loop to that. And the old fly would go in the stretcher case and you would, and, and so a fly wasn't just a fly in the, in, in your fly box. It was this fly in the stretcher case. And we'd have like 24 of those rigged and ready to go. And, and it was really fast and quick, but if you wanted to just change the fly, yeah, you know, it was, it was. So so problem. I still do that. You I do? have a stretcher box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should I not? Like, I feel well, like if I don't, the leader won't be straight. No, no. Well, you box. can, but that's <laughs> one of the big advantages of, of some of the new materials that have come out. Like some of the new fluorocarbon, you can just stretch between your knees right there on the boat. And honestly, like I've gotten away from straight all enough. stretcher okay. cases. I don't use okay. them anymore really? at all okay. because I'm now using... Um, fluorocarbon that I can easily stretch out. And as the fish have become harder and harder to, to get to bite, I'm using lighter and lighter fluorocarbon. So I can easily okay. stretch that on the boat. And if I'm not after a world record or in a tournament or there's, you're just out there fishing, you know, what, what does it really matter if your leader is 15 inches or 14 inches or yeah, 11 yeah, inches yeah, yeah. or, yeah. or whatever, you I know, just want to catch the fish. right. Yeah, you're just yeah. trying to catch the fish. So if you have <laughs> yeah. a 15 inch leader, like, like back in the leader stretcher days, everything was IGFA and, and in the tournaments, you know, of course, if you're fishing in a tournament, you got to be within the rules. And if they're saying it has to be a 12 inch leader, and it could be shorter than 12 inches, but not longer than 12 inches, then you have to respect that. But if you're just out there fishing, you know, I tie a leader that's long enough that I can cut the fly off and, and tie a new knot a couple of times, right, before I have to tie a new shock tippet on, right, because that's going to really start to slow you down. And, yeah. and yeah, yeah, so yeah, now yeah, if gotcha. I can just cut the fly off and tie a new fly on, I can do that really quick with, with 40 pound fluorocarbon or, or 50 pound fluorocarbon, which is pretty much what we're using these days. Instead of when I first started guiding, we were, I mean, people were using regularly hundred pound Mason, you know, hard mono yeah, yeah, like yeah. for tarpon. I mean, that stuff is like the size of one of the cables attached to my, to my computer here. Like it's like massive stuff and super hard to deal with. So that's the kind of thing that you would want to tie back on the bench with the, you know, where you could you know, somehow pull it with pliers and, you know, the whole deal to get that knot to seat properly. And those days are all over with the, with the nice fluorocarbon that we have now. And you can just, you don't even have to have gloves on. You just pull it tight that's good to know i'm learning every day tom yeah, this yeah. is good i need to uh, save room on my boat i have, I have a stretcher box that well i, have I mean the stretcher boxes ago. are great and and they can be really super fast but they also take a tremendous amount of time to to, to make, rig yeah, yeah, you know 24 flies like that and then the, what would happen to me all the time is i would get out there and there'd be a hot fly but i'd only have one of them in the leader stretcher box so i had 23 other flies that Useless. i had yeah, yeah. yeah that weren't <laughs> that they weren't eating and then it's like okay yeah, well yeah. we're having a uh, not time part Party here for a few minutes while uh, while I get three or four more flies set up. So I don't know. I think I think these days, you know, longer. I use 
not afraid to use a longer, longer shock tippet and I'm not fishing any tournaments and not trying to set any records on the tarpon and just, you know, just want to get the bite, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that's a part of it, right? Like the, um, like I try to, you know, what was it? I think Mark Sosin said like half your fish are caught the night before, right? Like have them all ready, but then stuff happens and you got cut off or you got broken off. And then, you know, the fish in your bias, your time real fast, you know, what can you tie fast and, and comfortably? That's exactly you know? right. That's, That's why you need a lot of knots because there are knots that you tie at home to get ready, which is absolutely the optimum knot. An FG knot is a perfect example of that. And then there are knots when you're, when your hands are wet and yeah. you know, you're, you're trying to seat it down properly and it's not getting seated um but there's another knot that you can tie that's really strong but not as not it's not perfect you know so when you show up at the boat for the in the morning your stuff's perfect but then throughout the day you're going to do the best you can <laughs> based upon the conditions and how much time you have and and i mean there's situations where you got fish all around you and if you stop to tie an fg knot they're all gone where you might just tie directly to the braid, right? Like, I mean, this is the only chance we got. <laughs> What's going Sorry. on there? Sorry, that's my dog barking. I yeah. think the mailman's come by. That's but, all right. Uh, well, we're approaching the end, Mike. You got uh, any other no, questions about knots? Or? No, I guess that's good. But did that come I used to tie a bimney twist, but I would never tie it in the boat. Like, at the night before, tie a bimney and all that, but you're on the boat and, like, I don't have time for a bimney twist. Just go, you know. Yeah. You know, I'm missing on that time, but no, I, I just look forward to seeing your, your spreadsheet there. That, yeah. That list well, of uh, we're so. going to put it together. If, if you want one, um, and anybody listen listening to this wants to have that, it's going to be uh, very available soon. But if you want to make sure that you get yours text 305-930-7346 or send me an email at podcast at saltwaterexperience.com and I'll save you one and make sure that you get on that list for sending those out when I, when I, when I have them, but I'll make sure you get one too, Mike, you were, uh, uh, inspirational and influential in my scientific method when you told me that I shouldn't just test it once. So all these nuts have been tested three times, like you suggested. Uh, so you, you three, test yeah. them three times, <laughs> you break all three of them and then you take an average. That's what we've been doing. So it Quite makes a difference. difference. <laughs> it, oh no, it really yeah, does yeah, make yeah. a difference because out of those three knots, one of the things that makes a really big difference is that you realize that not every knot that you tie is good. The same, right? Yeah. Like they look yeah, the yeah. same, but you break three of them. One of them breaks at ten, and the other two break at fifteen. You're like, okay, well, I obviously tied this one wrong, you know, yeah. or something's yeah, not yeah, right, something. or yeah, 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 it's yeah. not not working right. So, but the other two are consistent. And usually if that happens, I'll tie a, a, a fourth one and throw that in there and just see. And so you have one that breaks at 15, one breaks at 15.2, one that breaks at 10. It's like, huh, well, let's tie another one. And then that third one breaks at 15.3, right? So, okay, now I'm going to call so you it. you had an issue with that 10 pound. Right. Yeah. Something yeah, happened. Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. happened with that one. But anyway, all right, Mike. Well, thanks for being on the show today. I appreciate it and uh, giving us all this information about bonefish. When you're finished with this uh, new study, I'd love to have you on and find out what it takes to change regulations, uh, what kind of science we need to, to change regulations and how that whole process goes. Sounds like a riveting podcast, uh, but it would be it would be interesting. That's a, a very frustrating one, too. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. All right, man. I hope the wind stops blowing for you. You can get out there 
Uh, as for everybody else, if you want that knot guide, text me 305-930-7346. Podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's the email address, and you can um, get one of those knot guides for yourself. As far as the guests, next week we'll have another awesome guest just like Mike. Thanks again, Mike, and we will talk to you later. See you.